I know somewhere along the way, somebody will stop me from going too fast. But what our organization needs and most need are people who will be the irritator in chief sometimes to say like, we need to go faster. Let's go, let's move. This is Shirley Kavna, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the first Leadership Discoveries podcast of 2024. And I'm even more delighted to be joined by Dean McAllister, Executive Vice President at Inicio Biotech and formerly of AstraZeneca. And not only is Dean an extremely savvy, experienced commercial leader, but he's also passionate about leadership. And I myself have had the pleasure of working with Dean, and I know just how important these two topics are to him. So I'm looking forward to a really wide ranging discussion. But first off, Dean, you are very welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And when I hear that type of an introduction, I often catch myself listening, going, who are they talking about? Uh, but I guess it's me. So it's great to be here. I know I haven't done you justice in terms of that introduction. So can you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself, your background and what you do at the moment? Sure. Well, um, I am here with you today at uh, year 36 in this biopharma industry. Uh, the first 28 of those were with AstraZeneca prior to it even being called AstraZeneca. It's the first company I went to work for after college and progressed through 16 commercial assignments and six moves and uh, left there uh, with the retirement in 2016. That I'm very proud of, a great career, enabled me as a leader, gave me the ability to go all the way up through executive leadership in the US business for AstraZeneca, have a global viewpoint against a company that truly ran the business cycle, waxing and waning over all those years, feast and famine, and back to feast again and learning how to lead people up to groups of 1100 during that period of time. And since then, I've um, gone into the services side, which is where we work together with Anisio and its predecessor companies. My role now is to lead business development efforts for the entirety of Anisio's 11,000 people, four divisions and 28 agencies that are focused on biopharma services. I focus in particular on the private equity, emerging biotech, small and mid pharma as a way to go and look for opportunity for the organization and then bring that back to the individual divisions and agencies. That's great, Dean, thanks. I'm always reminded about the first time when we actually met, which was when I invited you to come and speak at one of our uh, global leadership development programs. And I was always struck by the fact that although you were um, extremely commercially orientated and you had this great customer lens and this sense of value, but there was always this piece around uh, leadership and the importance of leadership and the importance of being a leader. Um, and, and I'm just curious, where did that come from? How did that start for you? Well, it's very pragmatic because that's the only way anything ever gets done. I'm very much a realist in the sense that I try not to gloss over things or have too much of a rose-colored view, try and have a realistic assessment. And leadership is the art of accomplishing things through people. And we'll get into these topics, but it requires a leader to be very careful about what you choose to lead on and around. And I learned over those periods of time, particularly when I had larger groups of people, 
that I could not be scattered as the leader and expect those who followed me to be focused. It's interesting what you say that you couldn't afford to be scattered. There was this focus, uh, which I think is really interesting. But over the past three years, or is it four years now? Uh, I think we lose track of time because of the pandemic, but there's been a lot of change, clearly, a lot of change for leaders, a lot of disruption. Uh, aside from the pandemic, we have conflict, we've got market instability, we've got lots of things going on. And I'm just wondering when you look forward as a leader, either for yourself or for other people, what do leaders now need to have the skills and um, to be effective in this very, very dynamic, digitally enabled world and also a very uncertain world. I mean, what is it for you that leaders need to have as we go and look forward into the next five years even? Sure. Two things that I'll give to you and your listeners on this one. The first one is staying current. You mentioned about the pandemic and what we believe to be a post-pandemic. I don't know whether it's ever post-pandemic or it's just uh, the endemic maybe is the right word to bring into it. It's just a reality of we make choices as a society that there's always something that can hold you back, but the leaders are going to figure out how to embolden and enable people regardless of the circumstances. So whether it's a synthetic proximity that you're creating or a literal face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh kind of perspective, you still have to stay current. And I use an example here from a boss that I had back years ago Um, He was the third line leader in AstraZeneca, and he came in for my review one day. And no matter how far you go in an organization, and I was a second line leader at the time, when your boss comes for your review, you set up a little straighter in your chair and you pay attention, right? And this one was in person, unlike many of those today that may be done virtually. So as he opened up the review, he said, Dean, I think I figured out why you're good at your job. You know, you just take a moment, pause, listen, go like, and he said, you stay current. You know, you're not ever behind. And of course, he didn't know that I was behind sometimes, but I did have a rule where I started every day current. You know, I didn't start every day with a thousand emails in my inbox. I didn't start every day without being focused to take the time necessary to keep track of what was going on with the customers that I was responsible for, that my team was responsible for. So you had to be current on your search engine queries for the companies that you follow every day. You know, you you can't have them telling you what's happening in their business. You need to be ahead of it where you go like, yeah, I saw that press release. I know you have this data coming out, you're lagging behind in this market, et cetera. You just have to stay current. Well, since he was with me, I was looking right over at his inbox at the time. And maybe one of the things he was challenged with was the fact he wasn't staying current was his email inbox was a filing cabinet. Things never made it out of it. you know. So he was actually projecting out like, I see why you're good at your job and I wish there were things I could control in mine to be current. So the first thing of your question is that you have to stay current as the leader. You know, a team of people will never go further than they see their leader go. And, And one of those principles you have to model is that you have to stay current. The second is a triad of things that I think never change, regardless whether you're leading synthetic proximity in a virtual world or or you're up in front of a thousand people leading a charge and in a big meeting um, and you've got everybody and the answers are all up to you. There's three things. One of them is a leader has to create focus for people. And I realized this the further that I went 
the less I needed to say. Because as a third line leader at AstraZeneca, or even leading in our organization now, if I talk about five or six things, then as people lead through their parts of the organization, they're going to add things to it. And then by the time you get down to the final execution engine within an organization, they're going to go like, how on earth am I supposed to do 20 different things? So I learned as, as a leader that I had to keep people focused against a very small number of things and then talk about them over and over and over and over and over again until I was tired of hearing myself speak about them. So the first is focus. The second is inspire. It's a lost art, inspiration. We, we think that because people are educated and we deal with a largely venerable populace of people that tend to be in our employ, they get the inspiration naturally. No, we all need to be inspired, but as the leader, you have to create that inspiration. So I learned very quickly that a big part of what I needed to bring into the moment with people was to be a catalyst to inspire. Then the third part is to pick the right people because as a leader, by definition, you're not a doer, you're the leader. So you're gonna be over groups of people maybe that are also leaders. At some point you're gonna get down to where you're over the doers, but regardless, you have to have the right people in the role that are just under you. And it's critical if they're not, you help them find a job where they can be the right person. And it may not be in your organization. And you have to get to those decisions quickly. I used to encourage people that would come in and work for me to say, get to the bottom of your people issues as fast as you possibly can. Race to the bottom because you're never going to be able to build back your organization until you get the people issues right. So three things, focus, inspiration, and pick the right people. When you said inspire and when you said catalyst to inspire or catalyst of inspiration, it, I, I know that's a phrase and a term that you use very, very often um, because I, I, I've heard you talk in those terms before as well. So, um, and it isn't a great when we can actually walk away from either roles or roles we leave behind us where we feel we have actually been inspirational and people talk about us, you know, in that context. It's, it's a great, great compliment. Sure, because, you know, the statement, people only remember how you made them feel. Um, is such a truism. I have up in my residence a board that was given to me when I retired from AstraZeneca that has the word legacy on it. And it's um, something I'm very proud of. When I retired AstraZeneca, my team gave me this probably five by seven board to put up on the wall that said the word legacy is because I talked to them all the time about what legacy will you leave? Well, I was leaving. So what legacy was I leaving? Well, the subscript behind that superscript of the word legacy is of probably 50 lines of text of people saying the item that they remembered from working on the team. And that's where I learned like, oh, wow. And as I read through that, when I especially it was an emotional moment leaving the organization after 28 years, I was able to read what people actually remembered. And you know what? None of the comments back talked about how brilliant I was as a business mind in the organization. What those little sentences said were things like, you took time to talk to me when I was at a critical juncture in my career, or I remembered this or that about, some of them, I didn't even remember the conversation, but as I read through, I would go like, 
that was an emotional catalyst moment for that person. And that's what they remember. That's what they feel. So you're absolutely right that the catalyst piece is something that you then leave behind in someone that they can replicate in their own way, which is important because a lot of times as the leader, you think it has to be in your way. It does not because they're wired differently. You're not going to be around for the outcome anyway. So you just need to be a catalyst, cause change. And that's what people will remember. And you get rare moments in your career where you get to see what all those were for people at one time. And the last group I led at AstraZeneca was 300 people. And I got to see that. And I look at it still to this day. And will sometimes, all these years later, find that one little note that a person sent to me, snap a picture of it and text it to them. And immediately they are brought back to something years ago where they remember. And that's what makes you feel good as a leader. That's fantastic, isn't it, Dean? When I'm listening to you there, I'm, I'm taken about how, by how fondly you talk about AstraZeneca, actually. And you spent many years there, obviously many happy years. And I'm just curious because making a career change or moving um, is often a very big decision for people. And I'm just wondering, why, why did you make that move? Like, what was it for you? Because I think this is really important for people, that it's about being courageous as well, isn't it? I was coming to a point of uh, maturity at the same time where I hit the right age dynamic for that maturity, and there was a restructuring, and I could choose what happened to me. So it was the hardest professional decision of my life was leaving AstraZeneca, because I could have stayed, um, I could have done a lot more things, but surely there are points in time as a leader that you need to listen to context, listen to others in the organization, listen to what might be possible. Because as much as I enjoyed that environment that I worked in and the people that I worked around, I was also a little bit comfortable. So maybe this gets to the crux of your question. You have to look and say, hmm, I need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And sometimes we get so comfortable that we need to be kind of uh, jet propulsioned out into something else. And that's what this moment was for me, because clearly it was a financial decision I needed to make, and that's what made it. But then I felt absolutely lost for a couple of months after that, right? Because I had known what to do. And now I'm going like, I'm only 50 years old at that point. What do I do? And thankfully, I was able to go to one of the agencies within what has become AstraZeneca. And they had a need for a business development person to help them grow their business. And a person who I greatly respect, who runs a big portion of Inizio today, was the leader of that agency at the time. And he contacted me and said, hey, would you like to help us grow our business? And I almost said, well, what else do I have to do? But I realized that's probably not the right answer. So I thought about it and thought, you know, this would cause me growth and development. So probably that's the second part of the answer to your question is, is, am I comfortable, but also do I need to grow? And yes, I did. And what I found was going out into the pharma services world, I came out of like a cocoon that I had been in and realized what the rest of the industry actually was really like all that time. And I realized also that I just had to find out where roughly at that point, the thousand people I knew that had left AstraZeneca had gone and go talk to them and see if we couldn't do business with them. So it was just a tremendous chance to grow at 
50. And then I've I've had one more big propulsion of growth that happened at 55 when Inizio came around and private equity that purchased our organizations that have now become Inizio. They needed someone to go after this emerging space and say, could we tie all this together into a narrative to weave end-to-end services for emerging biotech and other similar organizations? So I've had these propulsions of growth at 50 and 55. And I think the analogy for your listeners is that your situations may be different, your time in life may be different, but you are going to have points where you realize I'm a little bit too comfortable and I need to grow. And those are leadership moments. And I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to take advantage of those too. Dean, isn't it interesting because people talk about growth mindset and fixed mindset and, you know, often we, you know, we, we go and we start, you know, researching what exactly does that mean? But from what you're saying there, that that kind of embodies really this whole growth mindset piece, you know, the, the courage, the preparedness to try something else, maybe the recognition as well that it's time to do something else. And, and one thing that strikes me as well from what you're saying, it's about control as well, isn't it? Isn't it about kind of controlling your destiny a little bit? Yes, the the great quote, the easiest way to predict the future is to create it. This is an example Mm -hmm. of that, is you're actually saying, I'm looking ahead and I'm going to take the smallest incremental step here toward creating my own future and writing my own story. Because, you know, if you're not writing your story, someone else is, and you better take back the pen because they're not going to write it in the way that you want it written. Yeah, fantastic. Create your own story. Absolutely. And that kind of leads us neatly on to a a topic that I've been thinking about, you know, particularly in relation to our conversation. And it is this piece around leaders in transition. So in my own practice, in my coaching uh, advisory practice, I speak to people who are senior people who are at that stage where they are transitioning into roles or moving up into a promotion. And on the surface, they are very confident, but like all of us, there are insecurities about stepping up into that role, a little bit about what you were talking about in your change there. So what advice would you give to leaders who are making this transition? How do they bring all of the things together that can be very complex, you know, in terms of managing a new boss, managing a new team, potentially managing new customers that you may not have managed before and a new set of internal customers as well. How do you bring all of that together? I know that's a big question, but any any thoughts you'd like to share around that? Yes, I would encourage people not to overcomplicate it. I, I have a theory that I just have to do the next thing well. That's what I would come back to here is what is the next thing that you need to do well as the leader in that moment, not two things from now, not three things from now, those will come about, but literally what is the next thing that you need to do well? So for some organizations, that's going to be, you need to have an assessment of the leadership talent. First thing, well, you got to do that and you got to get to the bottom of that probably before you can do any of the other things anyway. So yes, I expect people to say, well, it's more complicated than that. Of course it is. But yet for your daily focus, going back to the point we made earlier, just do the next thing well. And then what I've also found is the leader has to get to the irreducible minimum of whatever an issue is. And that's where you have to keep asking why until you get to the root cause. And that root cause will then help give you guidance on what you actually do need to do. So two things there, do the next thing well and get to the irreducible minimum. 
all of that do the next thing well and not overcomplicate things very very simple actually in many regards just one of the things that i know you you you're a great reader and you you're great for sharing really interesting articles that you come across and thank you for sharing them with me and one of the recent articles that you sent and it really was uh it struck me, you know, very interesting for many different dimensions was from the December Harvard Business Review, um, which was called What Today Rainmakers Do Differently. Um, and that rather controversially hypothesizes that business development at, at professional service firms is outdated. Is it, Dean? And, and, and if it is, what in your view needs to change? First of all, Harvard Business Review always makes me sound smarter when you can quote um, <laughs> smart people. And I'm particularly fond of HBR articles because I was in one in 2006 that my leadership coach at the time wrote on the destructive power of overachievers. Um, so it was a very intensive leadership coaching point that I went through that forever changed the way that I led. And I had an unflattering paragraph in that article. So when I see something that says Harvard Business Review, it piques my attention. Well, I had an old boss sent me this article that you referenced that's from, I believe, the November, December edition mm. of HBR. And it um, interestingly looked at the profiles of business developers, if you will. And that may not be the people who are exclusively focused against business development in an organization or a agency of some type. But those who are likely executing business and trying to get new business. I think that was really the, the model that they were after. But there's a, an impact on revenue generation based on these five profiles that they had. Um, so I thought it was fascinating and reading it further. I figured he was sending it to me for a reason. You know, and sometimes someone sends you something and you go like, is there a message behind the message? Is this good? Is this bad? So I quickly realized that there was only one of the profiles that actually had a positive impact on revenue generation. So I'm going, I hope to heaven that I have that profile, whatever it is that I'm about to read. Well, there were five profiles, and I'll work my way up to the one, of course, that is the one that made the impact. There were experts, confidants, debaters, realists, and all of us can think about people we work with who I would label in those categories. I work with so many unbelievably pedigreed and brilliant, intelligent people in this organization. Our medical division alone has 750 terminally degreed people with PharmDs, MDs, PhDs. I often say, well, my PhD is in speed and we're going to move at the speed of the market, right? So I look across this and realize every organization needs all these different profiles. But yet you've got to have a catalyst that makes something happen. And according to this article, not my point of view, but according to the article, those four profiles that I just listed, expert, confidant, debater, and realist, lead to a negative impact on revenue generation when that profile is employed to go out and try and get new business. And your leaders and readers can go to those articles to read in specifically about it. But there was one that had a 32% positive impact on revenue generation, and the profile was called Activator. And if you haven't guessed it yet, I would classify myself as that. But how do you know is the other part. So I go back to 
one of my fundamental theorems here to really get at the crux of answering your question around business development and what's outdated or not. You have to know yourself well first. And it can't be, well, I'm a people person. Well, as opposed to what? You know, you've got to have something that's a little bit more diagnostic than that. My number one strength is activator. Activators are catalysts. They cause things to happen. There's downsides of it too. You can overactivate. Obviously, you have to have rate limiting steps on that. But I would just encourage your listeners that you need to understand yourself well first as a leader before you can then know what golf clubs are in the bag to be able to use as a leader. So when I read this article and I see activator, which they're not using it in the sense of the strength finder term, but they're using it in the sense of somebody who causes things to happen. Doesn't necessarily worry about, is it always 100% right, but does worry about, is it 100% fast? And you might say, well, are you going to make foolish decisions, et cetera? Well, in our organization, remember the point I made about all of the unbelievably talented people that I work with that are very educationally pedigreed and have great experience. I know somewhere along the way, somebody will stop me from going too fast. But what our organization needs and most need are people who will be the irritator in chief sometimes to say like, we need to go faster. Let's go, let's move. We don't need the ninth meeting about our strategic plan. The first step in strategy is taking action. So let's take the smallest executable step towards something. You need somebody that can be that in a positive way agitator, irritator, whatever you want to call it, to ultimately activate the organization toward movement, toward setting business development meetings, toward taking advantage of opportunities, conferences coming up, contacts that you have. Instead of just opining in things and philosophizing, you need somebody that is actually on the pointy end of the spear causing something to happen. And then as that begins to happen, going back to a point I made earlier, no organization will go further than they see their leader go. If people see the leader comfortable being uncomfortable and comfortable with ambiguity of going, I don't know exactly how this is going to work, starting sentences that you have no idea how you're going to finish, getting in meetings, and like I've done before at the start of the meeting going, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. You know, you get everybody's attention in a meeting if you start out with things like that. They go like, well, if you don't know and you're starting the meeting, hey, I got your attention, didn't I? It, it's great, Dean. And I'm laughing here because I'm thinking before we went live on this conversation, that's exactly what we said. We have no idea how this conversation is going to turn out. Right. So. <laughs> it's true. But you need you need somebody, though, surely that is playing this profile of activator. And you might say, well, I'm a little bit more of a, you know, debater, realist, confident. Got that. All we're saying here is don't change who you are, but just agree that the end of every one of those points where you're fully exhausting your abilities, have an action step that's time bound, that is definable, that has some boundary around it that you know whether it's successful or not, and it's going to happen and that you stay at it. So that's the whole point of the article is take action. Mm. And, you know, Dean, there's a couple of things just when you've been talking there that 
I'm very interested in your view on things like failure, for instance, because, you know, taking action, being speedy, you, you need to be courageous, you need to be confident, but also you need to recognize that maybe things may not go as planned. How do you deal with failure or how do you recommend people deal with failure, you know, so that it doesn't dent the confidence, it doesn't stop you from doing things in the future? Well, it's how you look at failure. And I've got a whole podcast that I recorded on failure as a step to success. That's at um, yourstoria.com, U-R-S-T-O-R-I-A.com, also on any podcast source at that same um, title. But what I found in all the times where we were looking at a new business strategy was it's not going to be 100% successful. But also, it's highly unlikely to be 100% failure. You know, we often view these things, is it success or failure? Like it's a light switch. It's either on or off. No, no, it's more like a gradient. And quite honestly, look at baseball. You and uh, I realize we have a global audience here. They may go like, let's pick a different sport. But let me argue baseball for a minute. If you come up to the plate and you get a hit three times out of 10, bat 300 to use baseball parlance, you will make the all-star team. And probably if you do that over your career, you will make the Hall of Fame. And what does that also mean? That seven times out of 10, you came up to the plate and you went back to the dugout without ever having gone to first base. All right. So it isn't a gradient of on off success failure. It's a continuum. And the marketplace can be relatively forgiving. You don't have to have all of your drivers in a strategy hit the target. You might only need really one to hit the target. So I go back to the point of, of failure is really just a lesson in how to modify your strategy to make it more successful. Take the things that did work well, have a periodic review, not a daily, not a weekly review, but a quarterly review. Are we on track? Make the adjustments and get a little closer to the centerline target that you're after with each one of those reviews. So failure as a step to success is how I look at failure. Okay, interesting. How does that connect to resilience? We hear a lot about resilience. Um, like, how does it manifest itself in your eyes? I mean, when you when you really see it, what do you see? Resilience is actually mentioned a lot in that HBR article. The activators have more resilience than the other profiles, and it's because you have a fundamental belief. This goes back to Strength Finder. Another of my top five strengths is belief and responsibility. So it comes through. Naturally, for me, in the sense that I'm not going to be dissuaded by interim endpoints. You know, like we used to get sales data every Monday morning at AstraZeneca. And as a sales leader, you wake up going, like, is it going to be a good week or is it going to be a bad week? And you go, like, well, what's the data say? <laughs> and you can't live that way. You, you have to have the resilience, the stress tolerance, the focus, the perspective to be able to look and say, have we made incremental progress? That's really what we're after. Did we move the ball forward? Another of my top five strengths is maximizer. You will never hear me say, let's wait on more data. Uh, you'll, you will hear me say, let's act on the data that we have and just get incrementally better because incremental change is actually how things happen. Very seldom do things happen with exponential change. Exponential change paralyzes people, You know, whether it's on a personal level, or in any other theater across our lives, exponential change paralyzes you. Incremental change enables you. 
And therein lies the opportunity. So the leader has to be constantly looking for incremental change and then growing that incremental change to the next increment. Really interesting, Dean. Um, you know, and again, that whole perspective of how we view change, and, and I suppose as well, it's it's often bound by context. You know, what what can we really achieve within certain contexts is really important as well. Well, that's why the leader has to lead on few things, because think about you say leading within the context of of whatever is in front of you. But if you have ten things that you've said are you're leading on, you're eroding the value of any one of those by going across 10 things. And that's where I would argue you can't lead on more than three meaty issues at a time. People struggle with fours and fives. Yeah. Sometimes ones and twos are seen a little too simplistic. And as I said earlier, you can only do the next thing well, but you can really only be focused against three big nuts that you're trying to crack. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. And um, one of the things, Dean, just, you know, when we're talking about that whole piece around, particularly around client relationships, um, I know that there will be people listening to this um, this discussion, particularly because they'll be interested in what you have to say around this whole area, who will be thinking about how they build successful client relationships that deliver real value for all concerned, you know, everybody that's involved in that interaction. But they won't just be thinking about themselves and what they need to do. They'll be thinking about their teams. And I'm just interested to know from your perspective, how do you build capacity in your teams, particularly in that client interaction piece? Well, the first thing is you have to get on the same side of the street with your client. And what I mean by that is listening to what their objectives are. You know, if you come into a business development meeting with senior executives on on the other side of the table, and you're asking them some stupid question like what keeps you up at night, you haven't done your homework. Do some Google searches, you know, have a, I have a Seeking Alpha feed that I follow on probably a hundred companies that we're, we're interested in, um, where I look at their press releases every day. So before I go into a meeting with someone, I'm gonna be prepared. I'm gonna look at, well, what's the most recent narrative from their quarterly earnings statement? What, are, what data do they have coming out? One of our, um, key constituency companies just today put out some phase two data that shows like, hey, this is probably real and therein lies opportunity. Well, I'm going to get to hear them next week at JP Morgan as we record this, the biggest single business development opportunity in biopharma is about to happen. And that is the JP Morgan meeting in San Francisco next week. And I will be at their session and will be armed, ready to go up and talk to their leadership afterwards about what we have learned about their company and how we think we can help. So see, this is where it comes back to your business development strategies and building capacity is you have to have it focused against something that is important to the customer. You can't create something with a customer that is not important to them. So therefore, go with what's important to them. You know, don't fight gravity here and try and get them to come to your side on an issue. Go to something that you're on the same side of the street with and say, let us help you to grow this. You know, we see this happen as an example with companies that have probably seven or eight different pipeline programs going with phase one, phase two agents. We often come to them through one of our agencies and do a pipeline prioritization project. So there we're coming on the same side of, of the street with them because they need to focus and they need someone to come in and externally help them to focus. So therefore I'm not coming in with something that they 
will go like, no, 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 I don't need that. They're going to go like, yeah, I need that. I need help with that. And I'm willing to spend some money to be better focused, to have a greater shot at ultimately getting one of those indications and claims on market or getting, which is usually the case, the attention of a big pharma company like where I used to work at AstraZeneca to come and make a deal with them. So then they can take their pipeline and make it their own, which is how innovation actually happens in our market. Overwhelmingly now, it's no longer homegrown at the big pharma company. It's emerging biotechs are the pipeline for big pharma to an overwhelming extent. So the biggest way to grow capacity is not to fight against things that your customers aren't interested in. Go for the things that they're interested in. Be prepared and know that and come in with one or two ideas in every one of those business development meetings for how you can help them to achieve their objectives. Dean, I have to say, one of the greatest irritants I have is when people approach me and they are trying to tell me something and they basically say to me, can you tell us about your business? And I'm thinking, no, I cannot tell you about my business. You should know about my business. Yeah, that's why and I'm talking to you. Yeah, but isn't it, isn't it really into what you're just talking about there is exactly. And, I, you know, that different perspective, you know about my business. Yes. I often start business development discussions with um, five minutes on what I did to prepare and take them through. You know, I didn't just look at our LinkedIn profiles. That's Basecamp 101. Uh, but I actually listened to the last narrative that you had at a financial conference, or even better yet, I was at it and I heard it myself. And then I've gone away now and listened to the three things that you said were important to you and have come back and matched those with capabilities that we have. Do you think they're going to listen to you? Yes, because a big part of business development is breaking through the noise. You have to find a way to get them mentally or physically, or maybe both, out of the meeting that they just left prior to talking to you. And that's why you need some buffer. You need something that is about what I did to prepare. We've just come up with um, a two minute, this is an Izio type of a Vimeo video. And um, we now start showing that before some of our encounters and it clears people's heads. If you get somebody's attention where they're no longer able to have their head in their phone and following some text message or some alert or some Instagram story that they're fascinated by, but you actually cause them to focus on something for a few minutes. Boom, you created the teachable moment. And then you have an opportunity to come in and cause change and take that smallest executable step toward incremental progress. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say there, Dean, because just the whole perspective that you're talking about is one about, number one, I want to talk to you again because you came into me with something that really was a hook for me. And maybe you took a different approach. But again, the, the thing that keeps coming into my head is value, because you can add value to me. And that's really what I want to know about. Well, that's why people engage consultancies is to accomplish something that you can't do yourself, to take the external knowledge and complement the internal expertise that they already have. You're not trying to come in and replicate something. They don't need you to do that. They need you to come in and have an additive effect. And that's why you have to take that preparation and then turn it into execution by saying, here's how we can add to what you have. Because you usually only have 30 minutes. If you have a business development meeting that's more than 30 minutes, you're going to talk yourself into something, talk yourself back out of something. Some people believe that because you have an hour with somebody and it's 40 minutes has gone by and it seems to be over, that you can revisit topics. No, the best thing you can do is in the meeting, right? Because 
on the other side, they'll appreciate the 20 minutes back, first of all. Uh, but they will also look and go like, he was efficient with time. He's not going to waste my time. So I'm more likely to speak to Dean again because he didn't waste my time and there was a high value in it. And quite honestly, I try and make sure that I'm also real in my business development discussions, meaning that I'm 100% who I am and 0% of who I'm not. So there's going to be a little bit of sarcasm. There's going to be um, a little bit of, mm, what about that? And I'm convinced some people listen to me simply to say, well, what in the world is he going to say next? You know, <laughs> because this is like, un unlike anything I may have heard before. Great, because all those things, you've got somebody's attention. You have activated them in their organization as an advocate. And you have a chance to cause change, right? And I always tell my teams, I'd rather be bad than average because at least you differentiate yourself, right? <laughs> so I never want to be the one where they go like, did I talk to him? I don't know. I don't remember. You know, I'm going to make everybody happy either when I come or when I go. One of the two, I'm going to make everybody happy. And I'm okay with that. I don't have to hit a thousand here, going back to the baseball analogy. I only have to hit 300, three out of 10. If I were to, I'm really interested in what you're saying here, I have to say, I think it's fascinating. But how do you finish a meeting like that? You're with the client, you're, you've made the pitch, you've had the conversation. How does it end? It has to end with time-bound action steps. It has to. You have to come back with, we've agreed to these things. I'm summarizing them. Um, this is going to happen by this date. And then if you're sending them follow-up, take the time left that you didn't use in the meeting, hopefully ending early, and immediately send them the follow-up. Like if you went through content and say, I'm going to send this to you later, when's later? Later's now. You know, do it now. This goes back to the activator piece off of the HBR article. Because for a rare few moments in time, you have their complete attention. And you have a moment after it ends to send them the follow-up and get in a couple of more points while they're still remembering you. Instead of believing that somehow you're going to climb from message number 62 in their inbox up to message 59. And they're going to go like, yeah, that was, let me pick that one. No, no, no. You're just going to go back down the list again. You have to get to the top. And the way to be at the top is to be quick on your follow-up and thorough and then do what you said. So much like most situations, you're going to have to follow up because their action may not be as fast as your action. Two weeks later, I said I would follow up with you two weeks later. I start off by saying, as I promised to do, I'm checking back in with you two weeks later to see what direction you wanted to go because this seemed to be important. Oh, and here's another thing that I saw in the market today about what you did since we talked, right? I'm bringing back that current. You're going, he's paying attention. But all of it comes back to I'm activating. Never stop activating as a business developer. You're always looking for what's the next thing that we can do because they're not going to take most of what you say anyway, you're going to have to kiss 50 frogs to find the one prince in business development, right? So you better line up the frogs. You got to keep going, keep going, keep going and be okay with being told no as simply being a vehicle to not yet. And that's okay. And that's where the resilience comes in as well, I suspect. That is the resilience because you don't measure your effectiveness as a business development person on closure around that. You have to create your own closure, maybe better said, because I, I do like closure. I ESTJ, I said earlier, I was so J 
I had no P on the dimension. If you know that fourth dimension, the proctor came around to me and said, you have no process piece at all in your profile. I said, what's your point? Let's move on. He goes, you're definitely a J. I go, absolutely. I know myself well, right? I'm 57 years old. I'm not going to drastically change either. So I need to stick with what I know I'm good at based on my strengths and then be on it like a rat on a Cheeto and just never letting go and always going after it. And that resilience, stress tolerance, activation, that's the way you cause change. Dean, I'm really reluctant to bring this conversation to an end, I have to say, but I am not going to let you go without asking you about that Harvard Business Review article of 2006, I think you said. Yes. And I, I will make sure that all of these are available to people actually links, but I think the phrase you used was, um, it was about the destructive powers of overachievers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd gone through a group coaching model for probably six months or so, because at that point in time in AstraZeneca, it was maybe 2003, all the cool kids were getting a leadership coach. So I went to my boss and said, I want one too. And I didn't want one for pure reasons. I wanted one because everybody else was having one. It was the law of social proof. So I bugged him and bugged him and bugged him. He finally let me in the program. The guy that was my leadership coach has since retired from Hey Group, which has gone on to be a part of some other organization themselves. But he helped me see that I was leaning way too heavily on pace setting as a leadership style, way too heavily with competent people. And that's the piece about destructive power of overachievers. The other part of the title, I think it starts out achievement run amok. The destructive power of overachievers. If someone is looking up the article, you'll find it in 2006. And my paragraph in there was about a account director that reported to me that had won a managed care formulary placement for one of our AstraZeneca brands. And before she could come back to me with her plan, I was congratulating her in the message and at the same time, then pace setting her for all the things that needed to happen instead of letting up and going more toward visionary style, which was really what metamorphosized me as a leader, if that's even a word, was I replaced pace setting with visionary. And their data showed that that was the single biggest indicator of outcomes change for a leader with a competent team. Pace setting has its point, but with a competent team, you need to let up and you need to go into vision because vision is how you can help the team create a world that doesn't exist today. And it was through all that that I learned the importance and value of talking about things that are 12, 24 months out as headlines. You know, what do you want the headline to be about Anisio in January of 2025? Right. And then work your way back. It's often something I use with customers, too, is to say you've got some unbelievable catalysts coming up in your business this next year. What headline is going to be written about your business one year from now? Do you think they remember that business development conversation? Absolutely. So that time period in my life is, in, is encapsulated for me in that article. And it's only in that one paragraph. There was so much more about it. And thankfully, it wasn't just a focus on me in the article. There were many other leaders. And I think they should probably do a follow-up to say what happened to these leaders. But if they follow me at all, not that I would presume they would, they would see by the podcast I've reported, by this one that we've recorded here today, that I have tried to stay true to that leadership vision and not go back into 
pace setting. I used to have as my auto signature back during that time period, instead of don't print this out, save the whales or whatever people yeah. put in their, you know, their bylines at the end. I had in red type drive or be driven. You know, do you really want to work for that guy? Sure. Absolutely. It was a lead follower, get out of the way moment. And okay. wow, the coach I had just absolutely helped me see that I need to get over myself and I needed to take a step back and I need to realize why I was being a leader in the first place. I was not just trying to reach through my direct reports to get things done. I needed to take a step back and go back into vision. And that's what catapulted me as a leader to have larger numbers of people, to have more business responsibility, and it forever changed my perspective on what it means to lead. I, I just wonder, Dean, you know, I know you talk about visionary, you talk about pace setting. I suspect you flip flop a little bit, do you? In As needed. Those you know, pace setting is very relevant when standards are low. You have to come into situations. And, and that's the point I was making earlier about the third thing a leader has to do. You have to make people decisions. You have to come in and say, what's right here? Well, you're going to have to pace set your organization when standards are low. But you also know when to let up on that. And that's the art of leadership. You know, it's not just all science. It's not just all a rubric of follow this mathematical algorithm. You have to know when you have to let up on that. So, yes, you need to use all of the styles, but I was way over indexed. So there's a battery of things going back to you have to understand yourself well as a leader. You need to know something about motive, style and climate, which is the Daniel Goleman work on emotional intelligence. Those are foundational things. You don't come into this and just pull stuff out of your butt and lead. No, you absolutely have to be prepared. And, and that's all the work that goes on behind the scenes. Then you get in the moment, you are equipped and you're ready to lead and you're ready to be a catalyst to cause change. Just one thing you say there, Ed, some of the videos I've been looking at recently, Simon Sinek, and he talks about leadership and we're always learning. We are always students of leadership. And I, I, I always think that's a great phrase as well. Dean, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me here today. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I want to thank you, our listeners, too. I suspect you've come from very different parts of the globe and from within different industries also. And I hope that you have found the discussion as insightful and as thought-provoking as I did. By the way, if you'd like to contact me, you can do that on LinkedIn or on ShirleyCavanagh.com. And I'm sure Dean would be very comfortable as well with contact being made to him. And once again, Dean, thank you so much to our listeners. I hope this has been as useful to you as it has been for me. Dean, thank you again. Thank you.